so we've, we've started Luke's gospel, and we're going to, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Um, but we're also going to jump over to Romans 5. So if you have a special bookmark that you like to use, you can, you can jump over to Romans 5. And, and you can see that, that we're going to be in those two places. But we have a lot to do, so I really got to jump into this. Uh, so we've started Luke's gospel. We've unpacked the, the two narratives, the birth narratives of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of, of Jesus, both in our summertime. So it felt really good to celebrate Christmas in, in, in July. Uh, but one, one of the stories that we saw that was so peculiar a couple weeks ago was, was the story about when Jesus was 12 years old, his family took him to Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of the Passover, right? And, and long story short, actually it's not that long of a story, it's actually kind of short, uh, but Jesus gets left in Jerusalem, and we come to find out that the parents accidentally leave him, but Jesus also is intentionally staying in Jerusalem to be in the temple to, to hear the word of God being taught by, by whoever is there, listening and answering questions and asking questions. Uh, and they're completely perplexed by this. But eventually the storyline actually brings us to Joseph and Mary coming back to Jesus, and, and, and Mary corrects him. But Jesus' response is, don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business, or I'm supposed to be in my father's house? This is where I'm supposed to be. And, and that story, we talked about how Jesus was uniquely uh, knowing of who he was as the son of God. And this story this morning, where we will go this morning, is, is we're going to see once again the idea how Jesus uniquely and is completely confident and steadfast as who he was as the Son of God. So it's really important for us to understand that as we, as we move forward. So John the Baptist, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, John's message two weeks ago of baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And last week, we, uh, uh, Pastor Bill talked about how, uh, how he preached the gospel and what that gospel message was that he was preaching before the, this good news of the gospel actually came. He was the forerunner, right? So we have these two ideas moving forward about Jesus and his delighting obedience as a as, as the Son of God, and we have uh, uh, John preparing the way for something magnificent to take place. And that is the coming of the Messiah. And that leads us to our passage this morning. So have you ever thought, have you ever thought about what it means to be in a family? What it means to be a, a part of, of a family? Maybe, maybe you can define that as, as, as closeness. You can define that as happiness, joy, sometimes in different parts. Sometimes it's, it's longing, like longing for that reuniting, right? Families visiting even now or longing to, to be together. And so there's happiness and joy. There's love. There's kindness. There's those who we know that will always be there for us, that will support us, that will, that will be there when we, when we need them. Not perfect, but good. And to others, when we think about family... Sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes they're the ones who, who seemingly are the most critical of us. The ones that, that seemingly are the ones who are, who, who are the ones who harm us the most. Isn't it funny how we can have two different experiences 
and family. But one thing that we all can understand and we can all can relate to is that if we are part of a family, that, that if you're in that family, then you have a particular place in that family. Whether it's a good place, you've been put in a bad place, or you have a good place. Right? We, have, we have a position in that family that we are, uh, that we are in. So, for instance, I am, I am a son. Right? I'm, I'm a son to Dwight and Lindy Roberts. I'm a brother to a multitude of brothers and sisters. I won't bore you naming. I am, uh, I am also, a, uh, uh, to, to my children, I'm, I'm their father. Right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a husband. So we all have this position, and we have these, these, these places. And, and in our families, and in these dynamic of positions and places that we're in, we, we have expectations upon us. Some are bad expectations, but some are good expectations. So a couple weeks ago, I can't remember if our kids were going to a birthday party or if they were going to a VBS. I can't remember. But, but I had a conversation with my, with, with my girls that, that they were going to be alone. Well, the particular the birthday party is the first time we left them at a birthday party by themselves. Right? And, and so we had this conversation. I said, I said now, when you're at this party, I, and we're not going to be there, so, so we're not going to be there to correct you or reprove you or tell you where the bathroom is or any of those things. You're going to have to do all these things on, on your own. And what I want you to remember most of all is I want you to remember who you are. More than that you are an Eva or a Lottie, I want you to remember that you are a Roberts. And, and as a Roberts, as a daughter of Ben and Christina Roberts, there are things that we do and there are things that we don't do. And sometimes those things that we do and the things that we don't do are different from what other families do and don't do. But just because those families do and don't do doesn't mean that we have permission. I confuse my kids, right? You can, you can tell Lottie was just like, whatever, dude. <laughs> this weirdo needs to be quiet, right? Like, there's, there's things that we do and there's things that we don't do. There's places we go and there's places we don't go. There's things that we talk about and there's things that we don't talk about. And we don't take part of those conversations because we're a Roberts. And what has shaped us as, as Roberts is not only our morals and values that have been passed down to us, but also that we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, these, are, these values have been shaped. And we want to instill them in our homes. I, I wasn't trying to be a party squasher for my kids. I want them to have a good time. But first and foremost, I wanted them to remember who they were and whose they were. And so this morning, as we as we encounter this text of who Jesus is, I want us to see as, as a family, the family of God, who we are and whose we are. Let's look to uh, verse 21 in Luke chapter 3. It says, Now when the people were baptized, and when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now we're going to stop right there. We're going to, we're going to finish chapter 3 this morning, but we're going to stop right there for just a moment because we just got to unpack the, the significance of this moment. 
Now, the three other Gospels record the baptism of, of Jesus, and they give us a few more unique details that we know that he was baptized in the River Jordan, and it was the River Jordan that was across the, the way from the city of Bethany. But one thing Luke tells us that the other Gospels don't is it tells us that Jesus was praying. You see that? Yeah. yeah. Jesus was praying. So when Jesus was, was going down into the water and Jesus was coming back out of the water, Jesus was praying, which tells us, once again, shows us the evidence, once again, of that unique relationship that Jesus understood that he was God's son and wanted to commune with his Father. And so the Holy Spirit... What happened, right? The heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I I just, what what an amazing example of divine love in the Trinity, huh? That that in three different places we we see the Son of God submitting himself to obedience to the Father, We have the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son of God and empowering Him or or kind of ordaining Him for the work of the ministry. And we have God the Father speaking from heaven with with a voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's going to set us up for, for our, our conversation this morning as we continue through, uh, as we continue through Luke chapter three. Now, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, and one of the things we need to deal with, and I think it's the obvious one, is why did Jesus get baptized? Anybody, anybody ever asked that question? If John is baptizing because of the repentance of sin and for the forgiveness of sin, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of, why is Jesus being baptized? Now, we know Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life, even up to this point. Jesus made it through childhood. Jesus made it through puberty. Jesus made it through the beginning adulthood, all the way to 30-something years old. It's perfectly sinless. That's amazing. How did he, why? So why, why did he need forgiveness? Or why did it seem like he needed to be baptized? And you know, John realized this. Didn't he? Right? John realized this. In fact, I mean, Jesus is like walking down into the water, and John's like, no, 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 no. This ain't happening on my watch. No, Jesus, you can't be baptized. You need to be baptizing me. I, I'm, I'm unworthy to even untie your sandal, much less baptize you. But what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 3 tells us, he says, Jesus responds and says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning this, Jesus is saying that my baptism is necessary. It is necessary to fulfill the will of my Father because I'm to be this perfect embodiment of righteousness. Meaning when he goes down into the waters, what is he doing? He is identifying himself with those in whom he has come to save. He is purposely going down into the waters of baptism to identify himself to, to, uh, uh, to, to identify himself with those he has come to save. Right? So baptism, deeply significant. We love baptism. We're Baptists. We love baptism. We, we baptize good. We, we immerse you. Even in tanks you may be too small for, we'll still put you down. 
And for good reason, because baptism is important, because our Savior was, was baptized. And baptism has many layers of symbolism. And one of those layers is it represents this new identity of being brought into the kingdom of God. You're being brought into this new family. You're identifying with us, that you're no longer this old person, but you are a new creation in Christ. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he says that you are being baptized into a new body. You're baptizing into the one body, into the body of Christ. Isn't that funny? 1 Corinthians 12 comes off the heels of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is what we read when we do the Lord's Supper. You've been baptized into the body, into this body. Now take and eat. You're a part. You're into Christ. Romans 6 says you've been baptized into Christ. So to be baptized is a a bold statement of our allegiance and loyalty and identity. So when Jesus came to be baptized, he's saying, I'm identifying with these people that need forgiveness, that need repentance. I am baptizing. I'm being baptized so I can be like them. So here's the significance. Isn't it stunning that the Son of God did not burst onto the the scene just to enjoy this beautiful, unique relationship with excuse me, with God the Father, the the perfect love, perfect pleasure, but rather we see him getting baptized just like sinners, just like you and me. And this is what Jesus was pretty much saying when he was going in. He was saying, consider me one of them. Consider me one of them. Philippians 2, right? Consider me just like them. And this is so vastly important as we, as we look at our, our, our next passage. So Jesus is identifying himself as one of us, as a sinner in need of repentance and forgiveness. And, and we see the Trinitarian response is joy. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I have favor on him. He, it pleases God. He, God delights in it. He, he is it's pleasing to God. It's a pleasingness that, that satisfies God. Now in Luke 23, or Luke 3, 23 to 38, we get this section of the genealogy of Jesus. Now we're not going to read it. And I know you're like, that's heresy. Don't tell Bill. Bill might even get mad at me. But we're not going to read it for, names, for, for time's sake. But it has this list of names of where Jesus came from. In fact, it possibly, actually, if you compare the two genealogies, just for for those who care, if you compare the two genealogies in Luke and in Matthew, they're actually, they differ a little bit. And the reason why they differ is because Matthew sticks strictly to the line of Joseph, the adopted father. And it seems like, it doesn't say exactly in Luke, but it seems like Luke went with more of a, a Mary's line. And you can see where some of the places actually are the same. So some of the names actually, uh, actually come, to, uh, come together. So we're not, we're not for sure, 100%, but, but we also see where those, those lines come together. Now, Luke also does something very different. So Luke actually goes all the way to Adam, where, where Matthew stops at Abraham. Stops, at, uh, uh, stops at, at Abraham. We also notice that Matthew has starts the whole entire gospel off with the genealogy. And he has his purposes behind that, just as Luke has his purposes here. And the reason is, is not only because he wants us to see that God the Father, satisfied in his Son, comes through this line of humanity as well. And let me, let me show you what that 
Uh, let me show you what that means. So there's, there's some particular names that stand out to us, and you can actually look, and it may even be on the screen. You can see there's David, there's Boaz, there's Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Shem, Noah, Methuselah, Enoch, Seth, and then Adam. And a lot of times when we, when we read these genealogies or these kind of lists, don't we kind of want to like breeze through them? We just kind of, kind of like what I did. I don't want to read it. We kind of just breeze through it. But this is significantly important for us to, to see, for us to see this, this line. Because here is the Son of God who is pleasing to the Father. And then we have this, this line of people that is in the line of the Messiah who are entirely unpleasing to the Father. Who are unable to please the Father. Those who, even the greatest, I only read the good names there, right? Even the greatest among them were utter failures. Sinners. Unable to to please God. But then this new son comes down the line, Jesus. What does God say? You're pleasing to me. So there's this, this blaring theological though spotlight that's placed on the last name. Look at the last name in verse 38. The very last name. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There's like this spotlight that, that instantly goes right to that. Jesus, pleasing, son of God, Adam. And so what we have here is we can, we can take these, these two names and we can compare them. These two sons, yes, plural, sons of God. Adam and Jesus have something in common. Not only in their humanity, but they both have the same biological father. God the Father. Who they are and what they are came directly from God himself. And we're meant to see that. And we're meant to see the, the differences between them. And we know Adam is very, a very significant character in, 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 in our understanding to the story of the, of the Bible, but, but also in, in helping us understand who we are. When we look at Adam, we look at who we are. We can see our own human condition, our own human needs. Adam uniquely created in the image of God meaning he was created with the capacity to desire, to reflect the character and nature of God. He can, he can reflect and be obedient to the purposes of God and to the purposes of creation. But as the story goes, we see in chapter 3 of Genesis that Adam fell. Now, we, we, we kind of make that sound like it was innocent, kind of like we know when we fall, we're like, oh, I accidentally fell, like one of my kids did this week, fell. And it's an accident, clearly. But Adam who was the only human being to ever exist who completely had free choice. He's the only one that completely, with with nothing bearing on his, his conscience, he had no desires inside of him to bring him to sin. He didn't have that fleshly desires to temptation like we did. And yet here is Adam, who chose to cast off the authority of God for his own. Adam wanted to be his own God. He believed the lie and wanted to be his own God. 
And since then, there's this tragic, because of that tragic choice, all of human race, since that point, since then, we have been fighting. We have been scraping and stealing and murdering and building and destroying. We've been working. We've been resting. We've been lusting and denying and deceiving. We've been lying. We've had fear. We've been dominant. We've been abdicating. We've been abusive and neglective and so many other things, all for the same reason, because we too want to be our own God. Adam, the son of God, who fell, we have become like him. And so this is what takes us now to Romans chapter 5. Look now to Romans chapter 5. And while you do that, I'm going to take a sip of water. Romans chapter 5 this morning. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, right? So this is explaining what, what I've been telling you, that since sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's what this is telling us, right? So through Adam's rebellion, there's consequences of sin. That through this one man, sin came into the world to, to all of us. And because of sin, we now experience this consequence called death. Now certainly we know death is to be in this, the physical idea of death. That death is, is, is definitely comes through the means of you know, loss of life. And murder and accidents and sickness. We see that in funerals and things like that. But there's also, excuse me, a greater meaning to this word, death. It also means that we are spiritually dead. Most of y'all have heard that. We've, we, we went through Ephesians uh, uh, about a year ago. And, and you remember what we talked about in Ephesians 2. That we are spiritually dead, which means we are eternally separated from God. We are eternally separated from God, and we are walking the, the course of this world. And because of that, there's eternal consequences. And outside of the redemption of Christ, we will never get to experience the fullness of joy in this life. Now, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean that if you are lost, if you're an unbeliever, you don't enjoy the good things of this world. Like, I think that's a, that's a, that's a misnomer of what what sometimes evangelicalism has taught people, that if you're not a Christian, you're miserable. Well, some are. Some are miserable. But that doesn't mean they still can't enjoy good vacations and, and good relationship and good relations and, and, and good food and good drink and, and, they, and good sports. They, it's not like they can't enjoy those things. But when you're spiritually dead, you don't see the ultimate fulfillment and how all of those things can be rolled up for God's glory. So mankind, spiritually dead. But Jesus said that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life that is abundant. So you can be sure. So that we can be sure and we can have abundance and the fullness of joy. But outside of Christ, something that we can never experience. So now because of our, our federal head, our father, Adam, we all share in these consequences of sin and death. In fact, if you're a believer, you still share in those things. You still 
feel the effects of, of sin and the flesh and temptation. You still feel that. And yet we also still die physically. Look at verses 13 and 14. It continues. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not, is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. So let me just tell you what, all, what this means. So what he is telling us is you are, we are all guilty. That because of Adam, Adam's guilt, there's some mysterious union that we all share in Adam. We are all guilty in this. He is telling us that, that we are sinners, not because we sin, but we, that we sin because we are sinners. Sin isn't something that we do, but sin is something that we are. It's what defines us. And even before the law was given, as it says, even before uh, Moses, before the law was given, you sinned. That humanity was, was sinning. And this is such an important point for us to, to draw and to bring together because once again, there's this idea in popular evangelicalism that teaches us that our greatest problem is your sin. Like your actions, your sinful actions, not your sinful heart. And so we, we create everything around of trying to adjust those sins, to counteract those sins. And we never address the, the, the issue. So if you, if you grew up in church as a, as a child, we're, we're taught many ways, many moral things before we're taught the gospel. We're taught don't lie. We're taught to not curse or don't be disobedient. Dress a certain way. Look a certain way. And on the outside, we begin to look pretty good. And we begin to convince ourselves that there's nothing that wrong with me. I, I'm good. And what is, that, what is it denied altogether? It's denied that the heart condition of man that we all share in Adam. And on the other hand, we have generations of these externally moral people who are on the outside looking good, but on the inside, they're spiritually dead. And they're, they're convinced that by their works, by their external appearances and do-goodisms, is that a word, do-goodisms? Sounds good that by their do-goodisms, that, that they are right before God. You know what the problem with that is? The problem is, is a lot of these good moral people that we see externally that claim to know Jesus but have no real spiritual fruit, repentance, love, marks of the Holy Spirit, etc., fruits of the Spirit, the problem with these moral people, don't they generally turn out to be the worst among us? Don't they turn out to be the ones who, who like hate you the most, who, look, who are the judging the most? So we need to see from this text, that from our core, from our very fabric of our being, the fabric that was first strung by our, our father, Adam, we are corrupt. We have this bent towards sin this bent toward, toward sin, that even in our redeemed state, we still feel this bent toward iniquity. In fact, that's what iniquity means. You have this bent, this leaning to. You ever bent a, 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 a metal uh, hanger and then tried to get it back to the way it was? You can't do it. That's us. We still kind of resemble a hanger, even with the marshmallow sticks. That's, why you don't, that's the only reason why you bend the hanger. 
right? And we still, we, but we still have this resemblance of a hanger, but we're still bent. And we have this bent toward sin. And this, but this bent toward sin is not something that's created by us in our environment, Right? That, that's where we want to blame sin. We want to blame sin on, on other people. We want to blame sin on our environment. We want to blame sin on our lack of education. We want to blame sin on our parents. We want to blame all these things in our life on other people. That's what our culture tells us. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You just hung, you just hung out with the wrong people. So we have this, this idea of, of this popular blame game the thinking that it's just our environment. Now, let me tell you why that's false. My two-year-old is in this stage now where she likes to take the toys of our other kids. She takes the toys of our other kids. She'll sometimes throw other things at them when they try to get it back. And she also swings at them, you know, like. And all the while, this is what she's doing. She's yelling, mine! And yet it's not hers. And then guess what happens after that, right? Ultimately, the two-year-old's always going to get, you know, owned. So, so the two-year-old comes down crying to us, right? Can you imagine? I mean, this is sin at its core. I mean, it's, it's kind of cute. Well, it's not cute now. I mean, if you're there and you're a parent and you're just kind of sick of it, it's not cute. Maybe when they're one, it might be cute to y'all to watch us suffer and die over this, right? But, but it's not cute to us. And if it's not taken care of, guess what? It's going to get really ugly, isn't it? It's going to get really ugly. Guess what with, with Lydia? And by the way, she's not unique. She didn't learn that from me and Christina. Like, we have our moments, right? I mean, we get it, and maybe we do raise our voice. We do raise our voice occasionally. It's always good ways, reasons why. But, but she didn't learn. We don't, we don't walk around and like steal, take things from each other. Mine! And then like hit each other and then go screaming to the kids. <laughs> she didn't learn that from us. She, she didn't learn that from me. She didn't, she didn't learn that from Christian. Where did she learn it? She learned it from this idea that she is her own God. And I see that in myself, right? That I, I want to live out to be my own God. And this is so revealing to us because we're not innocent. Now, listen, I'm not dumb, right? I'm not dumb. Our culture and our environment, it, it does affect us. It only at- intensifies it, though. It intensifies our sinfulness. So if you grew up in a, in a dysfunctional family, or however you want to define that, it intensifies your sin. So don't blame other people. Blame your sin and apply the gospel to it. That's a side note. That's another sermon. So we might have grown up in a terrible environment, terrible family, terrible church, but the greatest problem is not someone else. The greatest problem is you. But see, this is where the good news really starts to come in, though. Because the story doesn't end. Romans 5 doesn't end here. Look at verse 15. It says, but the free gift, this is kind of confusing. I'm going to interpret to you in a minute. But the free gift is not like the trespass, right? So the free gift, salvation, grace, the grace of Christ, is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass. Much more, I mean, we could just sin. Adam disobeying God, did he even realize what would happen, the, the, the cosmic destruction that it would bring? 
And do we ever think that way even about our own sin? If one man's trespass, much more have the grace of, the, of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. So he's comparing the two. So here's Adam, his trespass. Here's Jesus. One man, Jesus, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Sounds confusing, I know. But here's what this is telling us ultimately, what it's saying. Is that the work of Christ is far greater than our union with Adam. What overcomes our sin, what overcomes that darkness and that, that, that I want to be God, and however I want to do it, my own self-righteousness or with my anger, it is overcome by the work of the gospel, the free work that is done through Christ. And so as Paul compares these two sons of God, Jesus and Adam, here he's, he's flat out telling us Jesus is far greater and far superior than Adam. Here's the good news. I think sometimes we, we, we've done a really got good job at, at, at times telling you that you're a sinner. I mean, we really have. And that's an important part. But let's make sure that we pull this pendulum a little bit back. That if you are in Christ, you have received a far greater gift in Christ. We've been now set free from sin. It no longer defines you. Yes, we may have been corrupt to the core at one moment and at one time, but now you are a new creation. You've been made new. That idea no longer defines on who we are. The free gift of God's grace and salvation is far greater than the power we had in our union with Adam. Do no longer define yourself as a sinner, but define yourself as a saint. Not because of your own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Because of his free gift of grace. Here's what it says, verse 17 again. Much more will those who receive the abundant grace of the free gift, righteous, and reign in the light through that one man, Jesus Christ. We're no longer shackled to sin and death. It is no longer our master. I desperately want to read 18 through 21, but we're not for the sake of time. We'll, just, we'll keep moving forward. But I want you to look up toward the beginning of Romans 5. Look toward the beginning. I want to direct you here. Look at verse 6. It'll be up on the screen. If you, if you don't get there, well, it's right there. It's on the same page. For, for a while we were still weak. Listen, for a while we were still weak. We were, we were in our, our first father. We were in Adam at the right time. Meaning, God's sovereign. He knew when it was happening, and this is the right time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we were left sinners in Adam, the first son of God, but in Christ, now what? We can be saved. We can be saved. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were still enemies, feel this, brothers and sisters, feel it, beloved. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Christ Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So two things that we see in this, this text right here. That our justification by the Son of God that pleased the Father has also achieved our reconciliation. Because we have been justified, our sins have been wiped away, that even in our best, we still need reconciliation. We still need it to be reconciled. Our righteousness is as like filthy rags before God. And here's Christ who interceded on our behalf. Our substitutionary atonement, his justification on the cross secured our atonement, but it also reconciled us to God, meaning it has brought us into this new relationship with God. I'm going to say this, and I want you to connect this with God, our Father. John chapter 1, verse 12, 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become saved. Become what? Children. To become children of God. And it's not by our own flesh or, or, or the will of man, but it's but by, by God. This new relationship, right? This new relationship that now we can become children of God. And if we are children, then God is our Father. And it continues. So I want us to see that as sons, we have Jesus, we have Adam who failed, but through Christ and his, uh, uh, through his work on the cross brought justification so that we can now be reconciled to God in this new relationship. We're brought into that great, unique relationship with God the Father as children, that we are sons. And if we are sons, then we are loved. They're going to put up the next verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God. God is showing us his love, that he has called us his children. We have this new relationship with God. And in that new relationship with God, it is not only originated by God, but it is defined by love. Our relationship with God is defined by love. Let me, just, let me just help you explain this a little more by looking to 1 John chapter 4, 9 and 10. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And now we can love God. That's all part of the text. I added that. And, and sent to his son to be our, sent by his son to be our propitiation for our sins. So in love, we have this new position as, as sons. We have this new acceptance brought into the family of God, not based upon our righteousness or our flesh, but it's based upon Christ's righteousness. We see that propitiation, the wrath of God, completely satisfied. You see, how that's how God looks at us. He's no longer angry. He's not, he's not pouring his wrath out on you. 
There's no condemnation for those in, in, in Christ Jesus. And so, in fact, they'll put up Romans 8. I'm not going to read it, but they'll put up Romans 8 in verses 15 through 17. It tells us we haven't received the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons to whom we call, cry out, Abba, Father. So we're not slaves. We're sons. Now, there's something very important for us to understand because in, in the household in the first century, you had slaves and you had sons. And if sons and slaves were treated differently. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And as a son, there becomes, there's certain rights and privileges and what it means to be a son. It means you're loved. Despite the dumb things you may do. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> despite the, the things we may go after how we may spurn our father and we may run away like the prodigal son. We're sons, not slaves. We're, we're no longer defined by performance. We're no longer defined. Our love, our, the love that God has for us as a father, as a son of God, is not defined by our performance. I, I heard this on uh, J.R. Vassar this week. He said, a love, that, a love you have to earn is never a love that you can enjoy. A love that you have to earn is not a love that you can enjoy. God knows that. You can't earn the love of God. So enjoy it. So enjoy it. I, I, I've told you all this before, but, but my, my, I always thought that I knew I was saved by grace, but I thought at that moment my, my acceptance, my continual acceptance was God was, was based upon my performance, on how I did, how many quiet times I did. If you guys remember those words, quiet times, we used to how many quiet times I did, how many scriptures I memorized, if I fasted or not, or, or if I was having evil thoughts, or if I was doing things that I knew I wasn't supposed to, if I was being obedient. I thought all of that defined how God loved me and how God looked at me. And that's not grace. That's not it. I could not enjoy that relationship with God. In fact, I didn't enjoy that relationship with God. I hated it. I continued it with a big smile. But God's grace says, I love you now. You're my son. I was acting as a slave would. I was living in fear. But I'm not a slave. I'm a son. We're not earning our acceptance. You are loved, your acceptance. And this is what it means to be a son. And so that we can delight in Christ's acceptance. We are loved as, this is huge, we are loved as Christ is loved. Can you imagine that? Like there's not a second tier, Jesus, and then the rest of us. We're son. We've been brought into the family. We've been adopted. We don't have that, that spirit of slavery, but we have that spirit of adoption as, as sons, and we are loved as Christ. And so, so when God the Father, in verse 22, looks at Jesus and he says, In you, beloved Son, I, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. Brothers and sisters, be assured that because Christ's perfect work on the cross, that now he looks upon you and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? And so he tells us to cry out, Abba, Father. Call him Father. And he's given us his Holy Spirit so that more and more we would learn to, to learn more and know and feel and delight and enjoy this love. 
And so what does this love move us to do? I know I'm going long, or it feels like it maybe. What does this love move us to do? Well, in Romans 8, it tells us to put away sin. Or before that passage I read in Romans 8, 15, 12 through 14, it says put away sin. Put away sin. If you are a son and no longer a slave, don't be a slave to it. Don't be a slave. You don't, you don't have to. There's, a, there's something greater. There's a greater love there. So we put, excuse me, as sons, because we are loved, we put sin to death. And that's the connection. How do you, how do you put sin out of your life? Here's the connection. The connection is, is to, to delight more, to think more in the love of God. The love of God as your Father. That's it. Um, an, English, uh, an English Puritan that I'm coming to enjoy and love more and more as I read, uh, read him, who is actually was a favorite of Charles Spurgeon, another name we throw around, is a guy named, uh, by the name of John Flavel. And, and I want to read this quote to you all. And I think it'll be very helpful. It's a little bit lengthy, but we'll kind of dissect it a little bit and we'll close. It is lengthy. I'm sorry. I apologize. If you can't read it, just listen. All right. Listen to this. Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and they promote sanctification. Meaning this, your joy and your happiness in your soul is essential for your sanctification. It is, you, you cannot uh, uh, begrudgingly love God, right? What, 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 where is there any enjoyment there, right? We cannot begrudgingly love God. So ecstasy and delight are essential to a believer's soul, and they promote sanctification. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. What does that mean? Excitement, joy, amazement, happiness, exhilaration. Like jumping out of an airplane. Ah, exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming, listen to this, will soon find himself tempted to have emotions satisfied from, I'm sorry, from earthly things and not as he had from the Spirit of God. So if you're not being satisfied with God in Christ and the, this, the exhilaration that we get from, from this heartwarming idea of who God is as our Father, if you're not experiencing that, you're going to go looking other places. It's the, it's the wife who doesn't feel loved by her husband. She goes to find someone else to love her. That's where you're going to go. You're going to go looking somewhere else. And the earth, the world, has got plenty of things that's going to say, I love you. Come to me. Come enjoy me. The soul is so, is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach real spiritual ones. Been dry spiritually? Been delighting in the world? The believer is in real danger if he allows himself to go any length of time, real spiritual danger, if he allows himself to go any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savor the felt comforts of the Savior's presence. So here's the answer. Tasting and seeing and savoring the, 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 the love of Christ. 
This is why we, we have this prayer on our, on our membership list and we pray for one another. We remember to pray for one another from Ephesians chapter 3 that, we may, that you pray for one another that they may grasp the, the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the width, so that we would enjoy and delight in the love of Christ. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go into silent search with other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of a believer, we mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Because the Lord has made himself accessible to us in the means of grace, it is our duty and privilege to seek this experience from him in these means, till we, may, till we are made the joyful partakers of it. Here's what that means. How do, we, how do we then obtain or feel this exhilarating experience, feeling joy of the love of God? And I think the first thing is we just got to take time for it. I mean, that just sounds so practical, doesn't it? I mean, it's how, how often do we go to church, we gather with the brothers and sisters, we, we hear the preaching, we sing glorious songs, we read the scripture, we pray with one another, we, we love on one another, sometimes we eat together and we take of the Lord's Supper, but we're, our minds are so fast to quick to change to something else. And then before we even get, we get home, we can't even remember what we talked about. When was the, the last time you've read the Word or you heard a sermon and you just kind of went home and was like, dang, and just wept, just, or maybe wept over the, the, the beauty and the glory of Christ because of the love that has been given to you, completely undeserved. I know there's moments, moments in my life where that have just been struck. God's love. And then it leaves me speechless. And you have to kind of go home on the Sabbath, on Sunday, and just kind of sit and not watch the game, or maybe not even worry about lunch. And just feast upon the Word of God. I think that's one of our greatest things. Is we greatest things here is we don't delight in the Word of God, or the, we don't delight in the love of God, because we haven't just spent time really thinking about it. And we're, we're so quick to just leave and not be overwhelmed by it. I think also practically what the love of God does, is it tells us that we can live confidently in the love of God. Because God loves me, I can now live confidently in his love. And we, we, we've talked about this, right? Christ was confident in his sonship. Jesus was, was more ostracized. Jesus was more cursed at Jesus was called worse names than any of us will ever be called, ever. And he was hung on the cross unjustly, and he was able to do all that confidently. Why? Because his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Brother, sister, can you hear that? That God says, you are my son in whom you are well pleased? What, what, what fear can we have that man can project upon you? What fear do you have? that cannot be overcome by the love of God. That we can live without shame. That we don't have to worry about what, what, what people think about us. We don't dictate what we speak.
speak about and say because we are fearful. The fear of man does not gauge us or, or control us or rule us. We don't give them the, the status of that kind of love. That we can live assured in the love of God. That there's no more condemnation. That God is not angry at me. He is no longer angry at you because his wrath was completely satisfied in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so therefore God loves me and that anything that comes my way, any suffering that may come, any persecution, any pain that comes my way is not, not God disciplining me in a, in a way because he hates me or because he's angry at me, but he's disciplining me because he loves me. Or he wants me to see something more or something greater. He's stripping something away, even good things in our life. Number four, that I can, leave, I can also live free from sin because God loves me. And the reason why, once again, is because our desires for sin has been replaced with something greater. Have right? you ever thought why you do certain things? Why? Because you, you kind of enjoy it. For the moment, when you give into the anger, you kind of enjoy it. It makes you think that this is going to make you feel better. Or you, whatever it may be, it could be a lust. You give into that, and it makes you feel better. Like, this is what's going to comfort you. This is what's going to satisfy you. But if you replace that with this greater affection, this affection of the love of God, there's this greater delight that says, I don't need that. That doesn't satisfy. That promised me that it's going to satisfy, but it doesn't. But what does is God the love of my Father. And so are you a son? Ask yourself, are, are you a son? I think if you are right now from hearing all this, you're not feeling condemnation. You may have walked in with sin. And the Spirit, the, the Spirit of God is the evidence right now convict you of sin, to repent of that sin, to confess that sin, whatever that may look like. But I think ultimately the Spirit of God is, could, should be showing you right now and bolstering in your spirit a love for the Father. To love the Father and the, the love of the Father. And so delight in it. Enjoy. Slow down. Take, take time to meditate on these passages. I threw out like 50,000 verses this morning, it seemed like, didn't it? Romans 5, Romans 8, 1 John, John chapter 1. Go to all those places and meditate on the love of God, slow down. Deny yourself something else this afternoon and replace it with this. And I guarantee you it'll be for your delight. Are you a son? If you are not a son and you're still a son of Adam, I pray that this morning you will confess your sins, you will repent of your sins, you will trust in the righteousness of Christ for your justification. And through his righteousness, through Christ's work on the cross, that you will be reconciled with God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use these words as you have used your word this morning, this week, in me. That as we respond together, that we are encouraging and edifying to one another. But that you would use it in your spirit to, to convince us even more and more of your love and what it means to be loved as a son. What a joy, what a grace 
means to be a son. In Jesus' name, amen.